some of you know that I enjoy playing golf, which I obviously haven't been able to do for quite some time because we haven't exactly had great weather. Um, but pretty much every course I've played uh, has a hole or two at least with some water on it. And if I had a dollar for every time that I told myself, don't hit the ball into the water, I would be a rich man. Don't hit the ball into the water. Now, luckily, my golf game has improved some, so I don't hit it into the water as much as I used to. Um, Having said that, that doesn't mean that I'm always near the green or near the hole where I need to be. And I have been guilty more than a few times of hitting more than a few balls into the water. Sports psychologists, though, will tell you that our brains have a hard time processing the word don't. Don't do this. Don't do that. When we are attempting especially to do something in particular. And so in a golfer's case, to use that example, when you're standing over the ball trying to hit the ball where you want it to go, trying not to hit the ball into the water, you have this picture in your mind when you're saying don't hit the ball into the water of what happening, the ball going into the water. Inevitably, when you're saying don't hit into the water, you're picturing the ball going into the water. But your brain has a hard time processing that word don't. It just sees the picture in your head, and you tend to live out that picture that is in your head. And more often than not, we as human beings often have pictures in our heads of things that we want to do or don't want to do in this case. And we say, don't do it, don't do it, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. And yet, what happens? We end up doing that very thing that we're trying not to do. That's why you can be on a diet and you can go into a, you know, go to a wedding or go to a birthday and you tell yourself, I'm not going to eat cake. And what do you end up doing? You end up eating some cake or some dessert or, or something along those lines. There's so much to be said for the target that's really preoccupying our minds and, the, and, and what it is that we're aiming for, even by default, in our hearts. Well, we are continuing in a series entitled The Good Life, in which we're walking through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And last week we focused in on a verse in, uh, in which Jesus tells us the target to aim for. Now he gives us a, uh, a, I don't want to say a generic target, but he tells us the target, and then he's going to kind of extrapolate on that and, and get into more detail about what that target looks like. But the target we looked at, he says this in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the target. And so we spent some time talking about how when Jesus says this, he's not necessarily calling us to be more obedient than the Pharisees, more obedient than the teachers of the law, but instead he's calling us to a deeper obedience, an obedience that isn't just on the outside and how we act in our external behavior, but rather an obedience that comes from our hearts. The righteousness that Jesus is aiming for is a righteousness that goes beyond just acting in a certain way and and, and what people see on the outside. Instead, it's about becoming a different kind of person on the inside. It's not about more, more obedience, more righteousness. It's about a deeper level of obedience. And it's in going that route, the route of becoming a different kind of person on the inside and pursuing a righteousness from the heart that actually makes it possible for us to live more righteously 
in the long run because we live from our hearts for better and for worse. That's a lot of what we talked about last week. And so for the rest of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to give us six real-life practical examples of what it looks like to live from a righteousness that is from the inside out, a righteousness that comes from the heart. And we're going to look at the first example today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is basically just a a term of contempt, you know, slang term of contempt, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. When Jesus says these words, he's addressing the target in people's minds for what they thought righteousness was in their day when it came to how you live when you're at odds with somebody or when you're in a fractured relationship with somebody. Just don't murder them, right? As long as we don't murder, we're good. So all of you who, you know, assume, you know, even if you have, there's still forgiveness, but, uh, you know, we're all doing pretty good, right? Just don't murder, we're doing pretty good. Just don't hit it in the water. As long as you don't murder, you're good. In fact, you can, you can even be angry. In fact, that word in uh, verse 22 in the Greek means intensely angry. And so you can be intensely angry. You can insult. You can label. Just don't murder. Then you're good. But Jesus comes along and he says, that's not really the target. Now, he does want us to get over the water. Let me just be clear, right? He doesn't want us to murder. But just because we don't murder doesn't mean that we're anywhere near the green or near the target that we should be in our hearts. He then goes on to talk about how we are accountable for our anger and for our words. In fact, he says that we're not just subject to judgment for murder, that we're we're even subject to judgment as well for our anger at each other and for our words about each other. Because we've even gotten it wrong if we think that simply not being angry with them or not insulting them is the target. Not murdering is not the target. Simply not being angry with them or not insulting them or labeling them, not even watching those things is the target. So you say, well, what is the target? We'll go back to Jesus' words in verses 23 and 24. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, in Jesus' mind, reconciliation and restoration is the target. That's the target that Jesus is aiming for. So when we're talking about a righteousness that goes deep, a righteousness that is from the inside out, here's the target that we're aiming for. (coughs) That's the righteousness that Jesus is aiming for. And to Jesus, it's so important, it is so important that we ought to interrupt our worship ritual just to take care of it. Right now, just to take care of it. 
while we're in the midst of our, to, to leave and say, this is important. Important enough that I need to stop what I'm doing right now and go and seek restoration. Why? Because as far as God is concerned, that's worship too. That's a function and part of our worship. As we talked about last week, in all six of these examples in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll see this in, in, in subsequent weeks, Jesus talks about the kind of righteousness that he's aiming for. And all of these situations involve how we relate to one another, how we treat each other. That righteousness isn't just about a vertical aspect and a vertical connection between us and God, but it's also horizontal in how we treat each other and the relationships we have with each other. It involves us and others. And in this example, Jesus talks to us about times in our lives that involve some fractured relationships, involves at times living at odds with some people in our lives. Because here's the reality. It happens, right? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm guessing that every single one of us at either some point or another or right now, and if you haven't right now or in the past, which I would guess that you're fibbing a little bit, uh, or in the future somewhere you will have this, are having to deal with some kind of brokenness in a relationship or in relationships around us. It is a reality. So what does it mean to live righteously from the inside out when it comes to those fractured relationships and those broken relationships? Again, the target isn't just to keep from killing them. That's not the target. If you're doing that, then that's a good start. I'm not going to downplay that, okay? But that's not the target. Even simply not being angry with them or not insulting them, that's not the target either. Our target ought to be working toward reconciliation and restoration. By the way, look again at verse 23. Jesus says, if you're at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Jesus isn't just talking about times when we have an issue with someone else, but also times when someone else has an issue with us. They're angry with us. They're upset with us. Jesus says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I find that person who has a beef with me, and then I come and offer my gift after, after seeking some restoration and reconciliation. If I've done something to someone or violated someone in some way that's got them upset with me and maybe even put them in jeopardy when it comes to their anger, I need to do what it takes to love my brother or sister enough and to make things right so that I don't cause them to stumble in their anger. There's even a responsibility that I have in that. Of course, part of the problem is that once we realize that someone is angry with us, what's our first reaction? Usually it's to get defensive, right? And then usually that turns into anger and frustration with them. Well, somebody's got a beef with me. Well, I, I got a beef with them then, right? And so we turn our anger at, back at them. And that drives us further apart. And that's why Jesus calls us to take the initiative in reconciliation and restoration. Now, I don't need to tell you that this is not easy stuff, right? This is hard stuff. Especially when some of you right now have very vivid thoughts and memories and emotions that are running through your mind right now, thinking about people in your life or people in your past who have done you wrong, or where there's a broken relationship or a fractured relationship. And, and I get that. And somebody may, you know, some of you may say, it's just too hard. I mean, you don't know what I've been through with this person. You don't know what I've had to endure. Can I just settle for not killing them? Isn't that enough? You know, 
Can I just settle for maybe saying a few angry words about them in private? And in some cases, we can't even stomach the idea of reconciliation and restoration. And in other cases, sometimes we may be willing to try, but we don't even have the slightest clue as to how I go about doing that. And and do I even have the resources in and of myself to try and pull this off? And this is why context matters. This is why Jesus' words at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm probably going to keep coming back to this because I think we need to hear this and just really feel it in our spirits and be reminded of it, that at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in Matthew chapter 4, even before that, he says that the kingdom of heaven has come near. The saving and delivering and redeeming and healing power of God is present in Jesus on the earth. And because of that, it's going to make a difference. Not it might make a difference, not it could make a difference. It's going to make a difference in the lives of those who follow him. In the lives of those who recognize that we are poor in spirit, that we don't have what it takes, that we are broken in and of ourselves, but I'm going to put my trust in God who heals the broken. And the good news is that the kingdom of heaven has come near to make a difference in us and for us and through us, so that we might be able to do what we can't do in and of ourselves, and so that we can do our part when it comes to reconciliation and restoration. Now notice that I said our part. Paul says in Romans chapter 18, verse 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I probably don't need to tell you that sometimes it does not depend on you, right? Sometimes the reality is you have no control over whether you have peace in a certain relationship in your life or not. And Jesus would acknowledge this, Paul would acknowledge this, all the biblical writers would probably acknowledge this, that it takes two to tango, right? When it comes to a relationship, it takes two. And finding some healing and, 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 and mending of that brokenness isn't just a one-sided decision. You can't make that decision for someone else. I also, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but I also want to recognize, because I know some of you um, might be pushing back a little bit, I want to I recognize that there are some extreme situations. And, and I get that. And I want to be sensitive to that. Don't think that I'm bulldozing you. That is not my attempt. It's really not my attempt. These are Jesus' words, not mine. That's not my goal. But no matter the situation, we can still say, when it comes to me, when it comes to me, God, I am going to submit myself to you. I don't have what it takes. I, I don't have the resources in and of myself to be able to love this person in the way that you have called me to love this person. And I'm at, and it may be a journey. It will be a journey. But I'm asking for you to come and make the difference in me and through me. I surrender my heart to you. All of us can do that. Now, I don't know what that will look like moving forward. I can't answer that for you. Every situation is different. But all of us can go there. Not saying it's easy, but all of us can go there. And that's some of what it looks like to live with an inside-out righteousness in the context of a relationship that's fractured. Because as I said earlier, during the course of our lives, we're all going to deal with that are dealing with that, have dealt with that, are going to deal with that. We're all going to deal with those fractured relationships. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I just have two points I want to leave you with, two, two takeaways as to why I think it's important for us to live 
and pursue an inside-out righteousness when it comes to those fractured relationships with others, and also how we deal with our anger. I'm kind of processing some of that. It's not a sermon on anger, but I do want to deal with it a little bit because I think it's obviously uh, in Jesus' words. And here's the first thing. When we pursue an inside-out righteousness, the don'ts become less of an issue rather than the focus. When you and I pursue the, the, the real target that Jesus is, is trying to get us to aim for, the don'ts, the, the don't hit it into the waters, become less of a focus. They become less of an issue than they would otherwise us making them the focus. Let me, let me try to explain and flesh this out. Let's say Marcy and I and the kids are going to go see my parents in uh, Atlanta. They live just north of Atlanta. And so we decide we're not going to drive. We're going to fly, you know, because I've heard gas is really expensive. So we're going to fly because, uh, yeah, like it's any cheaper to fly anyways. But we're going to fly down there. Okay, just go with my example. We're going to fly down there. And so Marcy and I and the kids, we buy tickets to go to Atlanta. It's pretty safe to assume that when we get to Atlanta and my parents pick us up, they're not going to say something to the effect of, I'm so glad you did not end up in New York or L.A., right? It's kind of presupposed that I'm going to end up in Atlanta. Why? Because I, I bought a ticket to go to Atlanta. That was my target. That was my destination. And so more than likely, I get things happen. Just roll with the example. More than likely, I'm going to end up in Atlanta. I took steps to get to Atlanta, and that made some other decisions for us. There were other destinations that we weren't going to end up at, right? When you and I set our hearts on the target of reconciliation, and we get on a path towards that target, that aim, that goal, it makes some other decisions for us in terms of where we're most likely not going to end up. We're going to be less inclined at taking someone's life, right? When I set my, my heart on the target of reconciliation, I'm going to be less inclined to want to take your life. That's just a reality. I'm also going to be less inclined to, to be perpetually angry at you for weeks and months and even years. Some of us have held on to those feelings. I'm going to be less likely to end up at insulting you and labeling you and all those other things that, that come along with our anger. On the flip side, here's another way to think about it. On the flip side, if I want to go to Atlanta, simply focusing on not going to New York or Los Angeles is not going to get me to Atlanta, right? I can focus on not going to New York and not going to Atlanta, and I might not do those, but that doesn't, or not uh, to L.A., but that doesn't mean that I'm going to get to Atlanta just by not, or focusing on not doing and going to those places. I've got to aim for Atlanta. And I've got to get on a path that takes me there. Simply focusing on not murdering or not being angry or not insulting and labeling isn't going to get us to the destination of reconciliation. And I shudder to think how many of us, myself included, have fallen victim of doing exactly the opposite of that. We say, well, I'm just not going to murder them. Not going to be angry with them. I'll just shut them out. And again, I know there are extreme cases, and I'm, I, but are we really working with a heart towards reconciliation and restoration? 
if not murdering in, is our target, like I can still be angry. I didn't murder you, but I can still be angry at you. I can still insult you. I can still label you. We can still end up at any of those destinations. And believe it or not, we could even still end up at the very destination we could never imagine. I heard a story several years ago about a couple of guys in a town in South Alabama, um, not South Arkansas. I would say don't make jokes if it was South Arkansas, but it's South Alabama, so you're free to make whatever jokes you want. Um, But these two guys, two grown men, sorry to all of you who have connections to Alabama, um, but these two, gr- two grown men got into an argument outside of an apartment complex, and the fight stemmed over um, other things, but at the heart of it was an argument over a Bible verse. Argument over a Bible verse, okay? And what that particular Bible verse meant. And one of them got so frustrated with the other that he went back into his apartment, grabbed a gun, shot the man, and killed him over a Bible verse. I don't think it was the one here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, but I could be wrong. I don't, know. I don't know all the details. This past year, in the United States alone, almost 20,000 homicides. 20,000. And some people say, well, we just need to post the Ten Commandments, right? We need to put those things back. We just need to tell people not to murder But simply telling people not to murder is the wrong target. In most cases, I would bet that someone, the moment before they pulled the trigger, made the the stab, whatever, however they attempted the homicide, or, you know, successfully, obviously, uh, in almost 20,000 cases, whatever their means of inflicting that harm on that other person, I'm, I'm rightfully certain that most of them knew it was wrong to do that. It's wrong to take another person's life. And I've got nothing against posting the Ten Commandments, but curbing the murder rate is going to take a whole lot more than just restraint on the outside. It's going to take transformation of somebody's heart on the inside. And ultimately, Jesus isn't just out to curb the murder rate or even to keep people from being angry or to keep us from labeling and calling each other names and cursing one another. He's out to restore what has been broken. That's the target. And we can obey the commandment of not murdering all the while still holding on to our anger. But it's pretty tough to pursue reconciliation and restoration while still holding on to our anger. It's tough to do, when, when that's your target, it's tough to hold on to those things. That's why reconciliation and restoration has to be the target. And when that's the target, the do nots become less of an issue. Does that make sense? When that's the target, I'm not worried about don't murdering. I'm not worried about that because I've got a target in mind that's it's just going to be, it's obviously don't murder, okay? If, you, if all you heard was Josh said it's okay to murder, please don't hear that, you know. That, that's still on the table, but it's no longer in my focus. I've got, I've got something bigger and better in mind. And then secondly, when we pursue an inside-out righteousness, anger becomes more of a servant rather than a master in our lives. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In essence, he says, I want you to give the same attention in your heart to anger that you do or would to murder. I want you to keep anger at 
as much of arm's length as, arm's length as you would murder. Don't, don't think that it's any better to get close to anger as it is to get close to, to murdering somebody. Why? Because violent words and violent actions are rooted in the soil of an angry heart. Let's go back to the first murder in the Bible, right? And it happened between, of all things, two brothers, which maybe that shouldn't be too surprising, but it happened between two brothers, two family members, two kin. But do you remember God's question to Cain prior to the murder? Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, he says to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why are you so angry? The story of the very first murder began because of one brother's difficulty processing anger in his own heart. And so Jesus is helping us to understand that we're not going to transform the exterior, the outside of our lives, simply by restraining from breaking these external laws and commands. That's not the way to get there. It may work for a little bit and it may you know, work okay in some ways, but that's not where true transformation takes place. Ultimately, it's got to be through dealing with our anger and dealing with those things that are inside our hearts. And all too often, anger winds up becoming our master and taking control of our lives instead of us taking control of it or allowing, more appropriately, allowing God to take control of it. Now, I do want to take a little bit of a detour for just a second and address anger. Because the reality is that anger is a natural physiological response. It is a natural physiological response. And this is a, I don't want to go too deep into this because this is a bigger discussion. I mean, you could do a a whole couple of lessons on anger, at least a, a whole lesson on anger. And we'll have to save that bigger discussion for another day. But let me do say that I think there are times when that initial physiological response of anger can be a catalyst, and I want to be careful with this, can be a catalyst to move us in a forward direction where we face the issue and move towards resolution, okay? It can be a catalyst, whether that be in our own lives or in a fractured relationship or even how we reach out to a lost and dying and hurting world. But let me also say that anger should not stay as the motivating factor. It can be something that initially moves us to action, but anger should never be our motivating factor. Because as we talked about, anger is something we have to be very, very, very careful with. Especially when we try to justify our anger in relation to God's anger. We say things like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm righteously angry. We have to be very, 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 very careful with that. And again, we don't have time to get into all of that, so I'm not going to go into great detail. If you'd like to talk about it, I'm more than, more than welcome to, to talk about and have a discussion afterwards. But let me just say this, and this is the deep theological, you know, meat that you really came to get. God is God, and you are not. Okay? Maybe I should have us repeat that. God is God, and you are not. Okay? Nor am I. He is God, and I am not. And his anger is a justified anger. But when the Bible talks about our anger, it's often not in a positive light. It's very often not in a positive light. As James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 says, many of you are familiar with this. We read the first part of this, usually leave the second part out a little bit. But listen to what James says. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce you getting the target. It doesn't. 
course, we also read in verses like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26, in your anger do not sin, right? We read that and we're like, oh, see, I can be angry and not sin. So I'm good, right? Just as long as I don't sin. Just don't hit it in the water, right? I can be angry, just don't murder. But listen to Paul's very next words. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. In essence, Paul says, don't let anger be your master. You master it. Don't hold on to it, but get rid of it and move beyond it because anger in our hearts is the devil's playground. Don't bury the issue in a bottle or a drug. Don't deny the issue or let it swell up inside you, but face the issue of what's been done and turn your anger into something that moves you forward towards resolution and healing. And so while that can be a, while that physiological response of anger can be a catalyst to move us forward, it should never, ever be our motivating factor. And yet, so often, far too many people don't move forward in their anger. Don't move forward toward a resolution, but rather they suppress it. They indulge it. Why why don't I just say, we suppress it? Let's not talk about other people. We suppress it. We indulge it. We stew over it. Medical experts say that a steady diet of anger in our lives can be related to as many, but not limited to, 20 different physical maladies, including headaches, stomach problems, immunity deficiencies, colds, colitis, skin problems, high blood pressure, depression, heart attacks, and strokes. When's the last time you checked your anger instead of your heart rate, your blood pressure? And the CDC, in fact, estimates that at least 85% of all diseases have a strong link to your emotional state, and some believe that number to be higher. And for some people who don't know how to process their anger, they live their lives for years being angry, but never truly dealing with it, denying it, suppressing it, burying it. But eventually, physiologically, it takes a toll. Reminds me of what, uh, J- what it says in Job chapter 5, verse 2. Resentment kills a fool. Like literally, it can actually cause you to, like it c- contributes to your death. That resentment, that anger can contribute to your death. Physiologically, that is true. The bottom line is that when anger becomes our master, we're not just in a position to tear other people down, but we're actually in a position to tear ourselves down as well. But when we pursue a righteousness from the inside out, from the heart, we're going on the offensive with our anger. We're paying attention to it and what's happening on the inside. It reminds me of the story I heard about this one mom who was in going shopping with her daughter and And her daughter was just a train wreck, young daughter, was just a train wreck, whining and crying, pulling stuff off the shelves, just being a brat, for lack of better words. And so finally they get into line to check out, and the mom's just like, okay, Katie, we're almost done. Just hang in there. Calm down. You know, it's going to be okay. We're going to get out of here in just a minute. And so the lady who's behind her in line, is just, she'd seen her earlier and how her daughter had been acting and just saw this, this, you know, this mom's patience with uh, her daughter. And she just said, I, I just want you to know how impressed I am with how you talked to, you know, so calmly to your daughter and, and, and didn't get upset with her. Little Katie is so lucky to have you uh, as a mom and, and to have a mom like you. And the mom said, oh, 
thank you, but my little girl's name is Julie. My name is Katie. She's talking to herself, if you didn't get the point. And while there's humor in that story, I, I think maybe there's also a lesson to be learned. Because at least that mother is paying attention to what's going on on the inside. And that's a lot of what Jesus is getting at, paying attention to what's happening on the inside of us because it starts there. Cain winds up killing his own brother, but it started with the anger in his heart. And so it is with us. And so Jesus comes along and says, I, I want you to truly experience the good life. But the only way you're truly going to live and experience the good life on the outside is by allowing my righteousness to go deep inside your heart on the inside. And any plan for living the good life has to factor in a time in our lives when we learn how to deal with those broken relationships, with those fractured relationships, with those difficult people in our lives. And listen, you and I are also the difficult people for somebody else, okay? You may have difficult people in your life. You're probably the difficult person for somebody, right? So have some grace, right? I need to remind myself of that. We're all going to walk through that at some point. And Jesus says there's a way forward. But here's the deal. It's not going to bypass your heart. It's not just on the outside. It has to go through your heart because God doesn't do heart bypasses. God does heart transplants. He wants our heart in on the action because we live from our hearts. And that's why his best work is always an inside job. 